Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today we are talking to Karen E. Fields about her new book, Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life, which she co-authored with Columbia University professor Barbara J. Fields. In this original book, Fields argues that though as a society we are keen to speak out against racism, we nevertheless take the concept of race for granted. By making parallels with the concept of witchcraft, Fields shows us how the illusion of race is everywhere, from politics to economics to everyday life. Like witchcraft, race is a mirage, defended and reconstructed by the language and actions we choose. If we work to break the spell that racecraft has on all of us, we can then start to have meaningful conversations about inequality, which today are always derailed by conversations about race. Karen E. Fields is an independent scholar and holds degrees from Harvard, Brandeis University, and the Sorbonne. She is the author of three published books and has also retranslated Emil Durkheim's classic, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life. Good afternoon, Karen. Well, good afternoon. Hi. Uh, Today we are talking to you about your book, Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life, uh, of which you are co-author with Barbara J. Fields. And I wanted to ask you, how did you come to write this book? How did the idea come to you? Well, the idea came to me after we had, after almost 20 years of comparing papers that we were doing, publications that we were doing. She, in history, she's a well-known U.S. Uh, historian of the U.S. South, and I was doing as a sociologist of religion. We noticed the convergence, so in 2008, I said, why don't we put these together? Because after all, we've been sharing them, discussing them, they have a common thread. And so that's how we came to write uh, write the book. The, the term racecraft it appears in a paper that I published in 2001, a technical paper for anthropologists. Oh, I see. Yeah, in in your book, you compare the concept that we think of commonly as race, and you compare it with witchcraft, which I thought was really interesting. What what are those commonalities? Well, the commonalities of such an excellent question you ask, Um, and the main answer may surprise you. Let me say it and then come back to it. Uh, It's that the principal features, of, of race as of witchcraft are invisible as they are presented. They're, they're, what is central to them is what is invisible. In race, for example, people say uh, color is visible, but the ranking of the negative or positive ranking is not visible. People say, again, color is visible and, and certain characteristics like criminality or low intelligence and so forth go with it. Those aren't visible either. So we mm-hmm. find that what we call race and think of as physical is something other than the physical representation. And uh, that is why we say it is not uh, the perception of difference that gives rise to race, but racist action um, uh, that gives rise, racism gives rise to the perception of race. It designates who can be abused by a variety of social uh, means that, that, that create inferiority or create a lack of desirability. 
Okay, and we know that, uh, on the other hand, racecraft is perfectly like that because, um, I'm sorry, witchcraft is perfectly like that because there's no such thing as a witch. There are only human beings who come to be accused of witchcraft and punished for it. But mm -hmm. all of the things witches supposedly do are invisible and impossible. And the way we go about them is that people confess or there's a proceeding where expectations are met, but no one has seen the evil eye do its thing. And no one has seen um, the uh, theft of milk from someone's cow uh, so that uh, the cow goes dry and then somebody else has milk mystically. Those, no one has ever seen those. So this, these, there's, a, there's analogies in the way of thinking. And we began to think of races and witches as thought products produced mm -hmm. in social life and that have particular properties. And that's uh, what we go into. And then we give examples to show those on the hoof. They're not at all, what I'm talking about is not at all obscure or hard to see. Mm -hmm. Ask me yeah. something else. Did I go I'm too sorry? fast? Did I go too fast? No, 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 that's fine. No, that's fine. Um, so, <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. I'm just thinking um, what I, I found really interesting because you're, you're not a big fan of the very, very commonly used term in sociology, social construct, which um, is probably a term that I've heard, you know, millions of times in sociological literature. Yeah. But you're not a big fan of that term. Why is that? It's that, well, I don't use it because always, and tell me if I'm wrong, it always fits into a, a sentence or a couple of sentences that says race isn't a biological reality. Mm -hmm. It's a social construct, and the word merely is often there. It's merely a social mm -hmm. construct, either the word itself or the idea. But there is nothing mere about a social construct. And if you think that because it's not built into biology... Uh, that race isn't built in biology, that it can't take your life, <laughs> or yeah. to take things up to this to our day, it can't get you categorized for a certain kind of disease process or kind of blood. You are you can't call those things mere. And right. uh, so it's, I am in the business of trying to figure out how the construction is achieved and to describe it as ethnographically as possible. And yeah, that is why uh, Chapter mm -hmm. 1 is full of examples of racecraft on the hoof. Right. In American Could you context. give us some examples of that? Um, yes, I can give examples of that. Um, there's racecraft that makes, uh, of course, part, the essential part of racecraft is perception of difference. Mm -hmm. And um, I have an, a, the, an example uh, of young children learning mm -hmm. the perception of difference that goes with the racial classification. In 2009, in a suburb outside Philadelphia, young children um, from an inner city day camp came to the, uh, to a, uh, to the suburban place for swimming. They had a contract to do so. Well, when they arrived in sight of the people who were there, the people rose and flew as if children 6 to 12 years old were dangerous. Mm 
mm-hmm. a spontaneous reaction as if a uh, an alarm had gone off. Now the, we, there was a huge press coverage of it, and one of the people heard from a, a, a family of a seven-year-old black girl who said, mm-hmm. "Am I too dark to swim?" This is uh-huh. what she reasoned as an explanation of that. So you see, she's in the process of learning a classification that right. her parents produced spontaneously. Mm-hmm. But uh, And she will soon be able to say, because I was black. But right then, as a seven-year-old, she said, is it that? Yeah. You see? Yeah. That is where the uh, an act of discrimination or an act of racism, the exclusion of people from that particular country club, Mm-hmm. Uh, is transmogrified, again, in the creepy way of, of witchcraft, into a trait of a person. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft, uh, racecraft, allows the regular sleight of hand in which an act of, of discrimination mm-hmm. is transformed into a trait of the person discriminated against. It's really interesting. What have I answered? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, like you said in your book that um, racecraft takes something an aggressor does and makes it into something that the target is. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But it's easy to miss that. Once people have, have thoroughly learned the classification, they don't notice what they are doing. The people right. at that um Country clubs said we have no rules of segregation at the country club. <laughs> right. Well, you don't right. need rules. It happened anyway, and spontaneously, it seemed. People jumped, pulled their children out of the pool, and ran away from children. It's a, astonishing as a, as a thing. Grown-ups running from children between 6 and 12 years old, who in no way were misbehaving. It's astonishing. Right. Yeah. But if you go with the old idea that it's because of color, you miss what is actually taking place on the ground. Right. It's almost a little bit like the chicken and the egg situation, you know, um, where everybody assumes that, well, the egg came from the chicken, but you're kind of arguing, well, not really. The racism kind of came first, or it comes first. Well, yes. The separation, yes, the, the establishment of a double standard. Now, mm-hmm. intentionally, we discuss examples where there's no difference of physical appearance. Right. And that's uh, toward the end in the chapter at which uh, I imagined a conversation between Emil Durkheim, who was a, uh, a Jew living in the Third Republic and uh, what mm-hmm. he was working on, um, the, on the founding of the discipline of sociology, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who was 10 years old, Ten years younger than he mm-hmm. in the Ameri- in the United States at the same era, pretty much um, working on the found- founding of sociology too, and they're dealing with racist regimes in both places. Now, in France, right. uh, the anti-Semitic move um, mm-hmm. uh, generated a racism that people in Durkheim's generation tried to fight. Mm-hmm. And they did not require different of color. Right. In fact, as everybody knows from the movies, when um, a generation later Nazis came to power, they didn't mm-hmm. rely on color. They required armbands, badges, and uh, right. you know, places to live. 
So it is not, there's not a chicken or an egg. There's always a discriminatory act that creates a racial uh, construct, I think. Right. But um, we could argue about that. When when there's racism involved. Yeah, um, yeah. I think people completely I, take for granted that the the difference in skin color is, um, you know, somehow means something. Um, but we don't. We classify people according to eye color, for example. Why not that no. as opposed to skin color right. or so, is your hair curly or straight, or whatever. Yeah. Very good. One of the yeah. reasons I love Durkheim's Elementary Forms of Religious Life, I retranslated that in 1995. Oh, wow. Uh, it was uh, I reg- his greatest book. And mm-hmm. one of the things that interests me is that he's talking about totemic clans and the reality of differences among human beings understood as the difference between can- what distinguishes kangaroos from emus. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the way they establish different appearance if they paint it on. And then they enact it. <laughs> and I right. said, I'll bet you, um, uh, in fact, I have argued this. Durkheim mm-hmm. was examining the emergence of racism in Europe, taking an example where it had to be done ceremonially and ritually rather than um, being taken for granted because people are born different looking. Right. So this is my my exciting exploration into a book that causes many <laughs> stops many undergraduates in their tracks. Yeah. <laughs> they don't see what's amazing about elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> They're not totally enthralled by it. Yeah, they should be. But <laughs> well, I retranslated it because it was so yes. so unclear. Yeah. Because yeah. they would stare at me. I'd say, "Look what this man is doing. He's on a tightrope." And he's doing this amazing uh, thing about uh, the difference, where the differentiation of humankind arises. And yeah. it just was a, a hit him with a thud. <laughs> yeah, I hear that I, I, better now that I retranslated. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it kind of, this kind of reminds me of, oh, now I cannot remember that woman's name. Um, that school teacher in Iowa, do you remember her name? The one who did the, the brown eye color, blue eye color experiment. Oh, I don't uh, remember her name, but go yes, ahead. Her story. Name. She's quite famous, and, and now I feel embarrassed that I don't remember it, but when she separated her students into blue eyes and brown eyes and then started to, to treat them as if they were different, and within a very short period of time, they started to actually act different. I mean, in the sense mm-hmm. she created, um, in a way, like you said, she created racecraft with eye color. You don't need physical difference to start with. I use the example of a people called the Cagots, C-A-G-O-T-S, who were described in a travel book by an American that, that goes back to 2007. Uh, now, the Cagots from the Middle Ages down to the French Revolution uh, were subject to rituals, that setting apart rituals that conjure up the American South in the much of the 20th century. They couldn't marry outside their group. They were restricted to certain designated entrances and seating at church. The communion host was offered them from the end of a stick or a long spoon. 
They had to wear an identifying badge, which might be a goose foot pinned to their tunic and much more. So they, uh, they, but they did not differ in their physical appearance from the locals. All of that was achieved, their distinctness from the Middle Ages down to the French Revolution was established by the, by the uh, division of their life from the lives of others. Uh, they also had to live in a certain part of villages and the rituals to which they uh, were subjected. Now, when the revolution came and the crowds got busy, um, it is thought that the cargo went and destroyed the parish registers and then left the parts of the country they came from where mm-hmm. their descent could, from this group could be proved. And, that's, and then they could pass it to the population as a whole. Right. And it's a reminder to us that uh, race, what we call racecraft and what people call race in America, that's vague shorthand, is not mm-hmm. something spontaneously given by, the, by people look, people's different looks. Sure. It has mm-hmm. to be created. It has to be created, yes. right. Um, and in the American context, how did Jim Crow help to uh, – accelerate and really solidify this process? Well, Jim Crow clarified who was who in the South at the end of the Civil War. Slavery was destroyed, and so you no no longer had the division between slaveholder and slave and the distinction between slaves as subordinate people and working people, landless working people, which was uh, a lower class group in the South. Um, the, but the collapse of the plantation order meant a reorganization, and the reorganization of Jim Crow um, uh, uh, provided for the, the continued subordination of black people, but also of white poor people. All of them lost the, uh, or, or many of both groups lost the right to vote, for example. Hmm. And uh, but black people for black people was elaborated in where they could go and where they could not go, what they could wear and so forth and so on. Right. And yeah. that, but it was def, a definite thing that my grandmother dated it to 1895 hmm. when the South Carolina new new constitution was adopted after the hmm. Civil War that reestablished power relations that allowed them to continue growing cotton and rice with mm-hmm. free labor but with the with uh but without the freedom uh being uh, real in an economic sense for subordinated black people and very little movement for the poor white people the, the space for poor white people to move forward right you actually give an example of your grandmother um kind of talking back to oh, the yes. yes when she was little? Yeah, she was a little girl, and she knew this was happening. And a, a foreigner, an, an immigrant, she called him a foreigner, an immigrant, European immigrant peddler who came around with a bag of stuff through the neighborhood where she lived, um, came to her door after that passed, and she said, I'm, I, this is a Jim Crow household, you're white, and you just can't sell here. And uh, actually, her household was next to the household of cousins, and she had happened to be in the cousin's house, so she rushed to the next door and answered the door the second time. (laughs) And he said, but don't punish me. I had nothing to do with the law. She said, this is a Jim Crow house, and you're white, so go. 
So that was uh, it, 1895. And yeah. at the same time, the white neighbors who lived mm-hmm. across the street who had grown up with uh, her, my grandmother's brothers playing marbles and so forth were right. be, uh, became people who lived on opposite sides of the color line, even though they continued to live across the street. There was no more right. playing and the rest. So that was done, and people, it was, it didn't have to happen. It did not have to be done that way. Mm-hmm. But that is it really the, created. That's it really the way the the order of of the oppressive order and the backward mm-hmm. order of South Carolina was established at the end of the Civil War. Right. Well, and it's interesting because it seems like uh, you talk about how, you know, a lot of white people in America are poor as well. Yes. But they don't want to be seen as being part of kind of the poor mob with which, you know, African-Americans are often, um, you know, associated with, so to speak, in the public discourse. Yes. Uh, Yes, yes. they don't want to. And um, but there are subject to the same uh, difficulty. They were even many of them were disfranchised when black people were disfranchised. Because people mm-hmm. were serious about who should come to power, and the poor white folks who had different interests, um, uh, many, a great many of them were removed from the voting roll. Mm-hmm. And and the, so thing, the way that separation between poor white people and poor black people yeah. was a bit like a red herring or like a distraction. Well, there was a, there was the the general regime of inequality was there. It was there mm-hmm. during slavery. The the planters had the best land and the big places, uh access to uh, uh bank funds and so forth. And that right there during that whole time, the other people had had to live within by that, you see, and um, it, it was not advantageous for many black, uh, for many white people, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just because they were white to be living in a slave-dominated order. They might be able to say we won't work side by side with slaves because mm-hmm. we are, after all, white people. But that didn't mean that they could advance or they could marry the, the uh, daughter of the plantation, the bell, or anything like that. No, no. Right. Right. They had to know. They had to know their place. Their place. Grandmother yeah. told another story about mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, about that, because uh, we make the point exactly the one you're asking me uh, that the the color line is very uh, very commonly shrouds the class line in the South, mm-hmm. the white versus white. Uh, opposition in the South. And we have a story that illustrates it. Grandmother Field's mother used to mm-hmm. push my father around, her grandson, around in a baby, beautiful baby carriage. And he, she would go to Colonial Lake, um, a, a very hotsy-totsy place in town, to let him take the air. And she would go. And the police officer who Grandma described as a burly Irishman would smile at her as mm-hmm. a great-grandmother as she went by. And then one day he came over to look at the baby. Mm-hmm. And when he saw a black child, his face turned red. He told her she couldn't be there, and he went. He just went off. And um, But my great-grandmother knew that she wasn't prohibited to be there. Right, and so she kept walking. She said God gave her strength to keep walking that day. She didn't stop walking that place and making, making frustrating the the police officer. Well, what was going on? 
was go- what was going on is that he assumed that she was the servant sure. carrying around a baby that belonged to his social better. He was not come grinning at her and saying hello because how nice it was for her to be out airing her grand- giving her grandson air during- on a fine day. It was right. because he was expressing due deference to the white people who were his social superiors. Yes. And yes. to find out that wasn't the case is what put him into the rage. That's that's yeah. our conclusion. Right. Right. Yeah, it made him very uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um you have some interesting stories about um how racecraft is perpetuated today that overt racism is no longer considered to be acceptable in American society, yes. but that racecraft continues to um exist and to you know, transform itself and and perpetuate itself. Um, could you tell us about that cab story? Which is well, shall I tell you the two cab stories, or just the one, yes. or the second one? Um, why don't you tell both? Okay, all right. Because everybody thinks they know the cab story that's been told about the uh, white cab driver bypasses the black man at 116th Street or wherever in New York City. Right. All right. Um, I have two stories. The first one is Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., about uh, six blocks or eight blocks from Union Station, where I I hail a cab successfully. I successfully Mm -hmm. hail a cab driven by an African driver, and on a rainy day in October, in the fall of 2008, and asked to go to Union Station. As we're driving along, the driver says, would you mind if I stop and pick up this person? It was a white person loaded down and being soaked because it was raining. Now, the driver was African. So we pulled up to the man, and the driver said in his pleasant voice, he asked me if I minded, and I said, no, of course not. Pick him up. Um, So the African driver asked him in his pleasant voice, uh, would he like to go? And the man jumped back. And he looked terror. He was the picture of terror. Yeah. No, no, please. No, no. Go ahead. And so we went along, and the driver said, what was wrong with him? And I said, (laughs) he thought he saw a car full of black people. He was terrified. The picture then on the face of the driver was something I wish I had a copy. A pure astonishment. He had no idea. He had no idea that he was black. After a while, I said, well, where are you from? And he said, I am Egyptian. He had right. he just had not learned the, the segregation rituals of the United States and what counted as different appearance tantamount to race. He right. wasn't up with the, the Egyptian, did not understand the classification. So I spent part of the ride explaining to him, and he was truly astonished. Wow. Yeah, it's um, he didn't have the the American, I guess the American trauma of no. segregation to um, yeah, to realize that that was what was happening. Yeah, no, he just right. thought here's the day I can get a couple of passengers, and a yeah. little bit more money, and meanwhile do a service because uh, it's it was raining hard, right. and there are not many cabs in Washington around five o'clock yeah. in the rain. So that's what happened, and the guy just let it go by. Yeah. yeah. We had a good time. I had a good time explaining him the sociology of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> good thing you had a sociologist in the cab to yeah. explain it. Yeah. Yes, I could tell him calmly what was going on. 
Yes. Now, the other story I would tell is also a cab story, uh, but mm-hmm. it's um, on the point about racism that we make often, that uh, it is really not an inner, a mental state that we're after, mm-hmm. hatred, bigotry, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister calls it troglodyte, caveman racism. We're not right. the people who brim over when they see black people in the wrong places. Right. So we're dealing with, uh, we say that racecraft is, is part and parcel of everyday life, people pursuing practical goals. And so our story, um, uh, we have a story like that, that uh, as it happened, took place on the day we went together ceremoniously to put the manuscript of racecraft into the mail. And my sister and I were standing together at 116th and Broadway, um, I wanted to take a taxi downtown. So we hailed a taxi, came toward us, and then sped up to go across the street. We turned, thinking he was trying to get through the light, and we ran at full speed, only to notice that there was a young couple, white people, running up, trying to get to the cab before us. They got to the cab before us, and the guy went on the outside, the woman, the girl went on the inside, and I screamed. This is racism. And she stared at me. Her face turned red. She froze. And Mm -hmm. the boyfriend came around the car and said, you get in the car. He was angry and frightened, I think. So they went off down the street in their thing. Neither one of them, I am sure, would have said, um, I'm better than black people. But they were not averse to taking advantage of of the effect their color had. (laughs) The respect their color drew from the driver. They're young enough to be our students. Who knows? They may be in one of my sister's classes, teachers at Columbia. Um, But it it was not hatred. They were simply doing, solving a practical problem. They wanted a taxi, and they saw a way to get it before us. And they never dreamed we could be their problem. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And and so a lot of what you're talking about is really how um, we need to be more conscious of all of this. Yes. Because I think for white people in general, the kind of what we call white privilege is really the uh, the luxury of not having to think about yes. it. Yes, yes. Um, because you don't get confronted by it all the time no. if you're white. It kind of goes unnoticed. You're kind of, you know, thinking of other things and you're not reminded every five seconds yes. that or you know, um, of race, of the existence of race. Um, so yeah, I think that's a fair point. I'm sorry. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is really um, trying to make people conscious yeah. of how racecraft is perpetuated um, by white people, kind of indulging in that privilege without thinking yeah. about it. We use um, a lot of examples to show them yeah. how it comes up. Yeah. So black people too, because black people are subject uh, mm-hmm. can be subject to it. Who uh, right. they see color too, because they have been um, it trained in the same classification. Right. So right. American rearing produces right. this, and we gave many examples in order to show people uh, how to be aware of what's going on when they're in place. Right. Yeah. You you talk about a very interesting story uh, with your grandmother um, and her pupil, and then having a conversation about this woman's brother. Could you tell us that story? Oh yes, I think- that was yes. yes. 
Um, yes, this is a matter of my being a foreigner to my daughter, to my grandmother's present back in the 1920s or 1930s as a school teacher on James Island off the coast of Charleston in South Carolina. And um, grandmother uh, one day received in her home a young a woman who was now middle-aged but who had been her, her student, uh, along with the brother of that woman. And they talked to a while, and then they got to the subject of the brother and how the brother had gone to prison for many years because he had been accused and convicted of asking a white girl for a drink of water. And that violated a very strictly held etiquette in the day. And I, from my, I, a foreigner to that, responded by saying, I was, I was astonished. And they went on to say, that boy, my brother didn't do it, another boy didn't did it, and he never would admit it. So my brother went to jail. And I listened to that, and I said, nobody should have gone to jail for something like that. And they looked at me, the two of them, and froze me in their gaze. And I realized in that reaction that they were within the horizon of action and the possibility of action of them. And the ethical issue was that the person who did the thing for which you could be jailed saved right. himself by not admitting it. And when I realized that, I real it didn't matter that it was disproportionate and outrageous to them. Somebody yeah. dared to do it, and everybody knew you weren't supposed to talk to white girls at all if you were a young black guy. So there it was. Right. So the bro- hey. yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder how, I mean, the concept of time also, because nowadays that sounds completely insane. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that was your, you know, your reaction. Like, yeah. what do you, you went to jail for saying, you know, for asking for a drink of water. That's psychotic. But, um, the, you know, I wonder if some of the stuff that happens today will one day be considered um, just as nuts. I you hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I hope you won't. It won't be thought that you're defending your home if you shoot somebody who's black in your in your gated community. And right. people that I hope there will not be a large number of people who say that's thoroughly justified. It makes sense. Yeah. And uh, yes, I. But one doesn't know that there won't be a new version we haven't imagined. <laughs> right. To replace yeah. it, um, I just don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I do know that people who live in gated communities or segregated communities and never see anybody else passing through are living in a complicity with racial exclusion. Yeah. And um, they should be, they will be made aware without necessarily being aware of it because they haven't mm-hmm. said, they haven't got a thing that said we won't allow black people to live here or, and, and so forth and so on. But they need to realize that it doesn't happen by accident that places are segregated like that. And uh, if they're seriously against ra- the perpetuation of racism, then that's mm-hmm. um, that's something to watch. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like you know the fight against racism, against race craft. Yes. Um, has to be something that you do, and not just a removal right. of. Um, exclusionary laws. Right, right. Yeah. A different mm-hmm. way of doing. 
Right. Yeah, and awareness is how it yeah. jokes. Right. We have you a, say that talking about inequality in um, America is nearly impossible because we don't have the language for it. Right. We, our language of inequality is is shaped in the crucible of race talk, and race mm-hmm. thought. So if anybody wants to have a movement for economic justice in uh, among people who work with their hands, they go up, they find headwinds in the hostile attitudes toward black people in whatever they do, and they will feel um, uh, associated with associated badly. There's a story we quote of a <clears throat> of an electrician mm-hmm. who uh lost uh who didn't lose his job but lost enough hours in the week that he was required he to, in order to feed his to feed his family he had to buy food stamps. Mm-hmm. He lived in Martinsville, Ohio, but he was ashamed to tell his patients that his parents that he was using food stamps and he had contempt for the people who he assumed were different from him and were crowded over there on that midnight trip, the same one he had made. But he thinks, if generally, he says, I'm quoting here, if you're up at that order or hour and not working, what are you into? So he implied, in his own mind, he thought they must be criminals. He is um, normally there because he lost hours on his job. So it's hard to imagine a movement, a political demand, that would say, look, we need to be able, there's something basically American about being able to work in a skilled occupation and make enough to support your family. Mm-hmm. And on that basis, we move to make those demands. And when those things are not possible, then public assistance. And it's not a shameful thing to be associated with um, laziness or criminality or uncouthness. This is a matter of citizenship rights. But you see how race talk has taken that kind of discourse off the table. Right. And we have to get it back on the table because it's crucial. I think. Yeah. Bridge the gap. Yeah. Um, Do you think that this has to do uh, with... You know, with Obama being elected president, of course, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, now we're in a post-racial era, and uh, you claim that this is flatly untrue. It's flatly untrue. It's obviously untrue. And very soon after he was elected, the troglodyte racism resurfaced. Yes, yes. People carrying weapons to uh, presidential events. Uh, yeah. And that man, uh, Wilson, that Representative Wilson from our ancestral state, South Carolina, standing mm-hmm. up and hollering in the midst of the State of the Union address, that solemn occasion with two assembled, um, the House, House, the House of Representatives and the Senate in joint session, formal and ceremonial, here he comes, you lie, out in the midst of all that, mm-hmm. um, as a way to say we don't have a, uh, Obama is the president, but he's black, and there's a different there's a different etiquette dealing with yeah. the president. So that's that came within a, the first month or two of the presidency, and so that's right. um, so we were given notice from the beginning that yeah. um, post racial isn't now only fatuous people. <laughs> I should. <laughs> 
began to say, I won't quote, but they are quoted in the book, who say uh, people are, you're talking about the Voting Voters' Rights Act when some uh, politician said, now we can get rid of that. Uh, and here comes somebody who's not announced as a person of the right wing saying, I thought we, we thought by electing President Obama we're beyond this. About the Voting Rights Act, the enforcement of voting rights in a place where uh, where voting rights are still in, in question, but here came the fatuousness there. But as we, the point we make is that uh, we can't have uh, the election of a president doesn't set up the county commission, which has to hold people accountable for the way roads are and uh, trash removal is in the place where people live. They have to have the vote where jury duty is. Uh, rotates through everybody. Um, we can't just proclaim uh, post-racial because uh, an African American president president was elected. Was elected, right? right. And yeah. and indeed, our argument for the book is in the book as a whole is we will not know when we are post-racial unless we have fully understood what racial means. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Karen, this has been a really interesting and really enlightening conversation. Um, if people want to buy your book, they can go to uh, most bookstores will have it. Amazon has it. Amazon has it. If they have yeah. a local bookstore, they should get the seller to order it. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. You have been listening to an interview with Karen E. Fields co-author of Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life. This is your hostess, Annie Sapukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology. See you next time.